as a mother, I am so afraid of fentanyl because it's just that deadly. I mean, this is killing our next generation. One of our sons who's in college, his roommate also took his own life with opioids. And so it's a very personal thing now. We are involved because we want to make sure we understand exactly how to curb the problem. Welcome to Wei and Kathy Show. I'm your host, Wei Fang. I'm Kathy Zhang. So how much do you know about the crisis of the fentanyl? Okay, and uh, Kathy and uh, Wei is still in uh, Orlando, Florida. So today we have a special reporting uh, for you. So let me give you some numbers first. Okay, so um, last year, last year, 100,000 uh, Americans died of uh, fentanyl. And then if we dial back the time 10 years ago, literally the death from fentanyl is unheard of. In the 2014, 30,000 people died. As of last, last year, 100,000 people died. And the CDC's most recent numbers say, saying that uh, 150,000 people, Americans, could die this year. And then during the entire uh, the, the pandemic time, the, the death toll from the fentanyl increased by 40%, all right? And um, 80% of the fentanyl death originated from a legal prescription for teenagers from age 17 to 27, okay? This is why it's so hard to defend against fentanyl because nobody knows it's a problem. And it does not take any shape, does not take any clear identities. And it can come in from any pill, the pill of any shape, size, or name. And then, however, two milligram, two milligram, of fentanyl take a person's life. This is how threatening it is. It is ravaging America without much people knowing it, many people knowing it, without many people recognizing, it, especially our teenager, who are the, 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 the who, who occupied the, uh, the the largest, who is the largest group that died from fentanyl. So we run into this issue actually today. I mean, this news event. So a young girl, 18 year old, and her name is uh, Victoria, Victoria Siegel. And she's a very beautiful lady. And uh, at the age of 18, she lost her life. And her parents, the name is David Siegel and uh, Jackie, Jackie Siegel. Siegel. Okay, David Siegel happened to be the, um, the yeah. billionaire. He's, a, he's a, actually this uh, beautiful young <clears throat> girl was one of the earliest victim of fentanyl overdose and she come from uh, she came from a very wealthy family her father david siegel is actually the owner of the largest timeshare resort in the united states he founded uh, uh, it's called the westgate resorts in florida and uh, he served as the president and the CEO. He has a lot of just different businesses in constructions, real estate, hotel, uh, insurance, etc. And uh, also he owns, he's the owner of uh, Orlando Predator, Predators, the um, football team. And uh, the family, they totally have 11 children. And uh, so, unfortunately, on June 6, 2015, David and Jackie Siegel received a call that no parent would never, would ever get and should ever get and uh, do not want it to get their beautiful 18-year-old 
Victoria died of overdose of uh, fentanyl. Mm -hmm. So it's such you know a tragedy for the family. But uh, David Siegel, you know, came out of the such a sad tragedy, and uh, they actually decided to devote their whole life to um, save other kids' life. Yeah. preventing them from dying of uh, overdose of fentanyl. So they created this foundation called the Victoria's Voice Foundation. And uh, today in Orlando, they had this um, uh, roundtable discussion to especially dedicate to this issue. And uh, they attra you know, attracted uh, just a range of um, speakers for the panel for the discussion, including the Attorney General of Florida, uh, Sheriff, uh, and uh, other uh, yeah, basically, experts, medical uh, experts. Yeah, first, I'll dial back a little bit. David Siegel, is, as uh, Kathy told you, he, uh, he's uh, lar the largest uh, time-sharing resort um, the owner. Mm -hmm. And uh, so after Victoria, his daughter died, okay, uh, from fentanyl uh, overdose. So basically, he called in his executive. He said that from now on, you, got, you guys are going to run the company. I won't be doing that, okay? My entire devotion will be switched to the preventing uh, the fentanyl overdose and the saving American teenagers' life. So today, this roundtable invited, they invited the elected officials and uh, medical professional and the law enforcement uh, officials from federal, state, and uh, county and uh, researchers and the media and so on and so forth. Really, it's quite a big meeting. So the purpose is really raise awareness and to come up with an actionable plan to prevent the um, spreading of the fentanyl and saving American kids' life. So today is a special report, and I don't know, you know how close fentanyl has come to your neighborhood or your friends. If you have such experience, please you know, leave the content there. And actually, uh, you know, way I, I follow this issue for quite a bit of time, and I actually produced a six episode, okay, six episode of the in Chinese on, on this very matter. And uh, the the source of fentanyl came from China, from CCP, and then it is uh, involved the government mafia. It's called a big uh, big boy circle, a very big and vicious uh, mafia in China, in Hong Kong and uh, and Macau, and uh, and corrupted officials in Canada. And uh, so it's, it's a very big network. A lot of money was running behind it. And the, there's, it's not co coincidence that the fentanyl death just jumped up so much in the recent few years. There's a lot of money behind it. If I give you just one description, you would understand. Okay, the biggest drug lord um, in this world, as we as we knew it, was a, it was a um, Mexican drug lord. And his total asset is $30 billion. And you think that's a really record-breaking. The production of fentanyl in China, it took the nation's chemical industry. It is hundreds of times larger than the largest Mexico drug lord. This is how bad it gets. And, yeah, and they're talking about how close is to American people's family. We actually met um, the very famous singer and a songwriter Lee Greenwood and he joined the roundtable discussion and press conference afterwards and uh, uh, I actually interviewed him about 
uh, the issue, as you may see in the opening, it's very personal to him as well. So we'll present to you, you know, bring his interview to you a short, you know, a bit later. Okay. Yeah. So now let's, now let's come to the Jackie Jackie Siegel's story, and uh, she apparently she she's the host. She was the host of today's roundtable, and uh, and we interviewed her and. Uh, yeah so, story. yeah so first of all you know i just asked her why they hold this round table just to discuss this very issue it is now getting worse than ever um I, believe it or not the mexicans uh, cartel they've learned how to make fentanyl and they're bringing so much of it through our open border through arizona and right now i feel most of the street drugs are laced with fentanyl. And when my daughter died six years ago, it was like the opioid epidemic and, and people dying from cocaine or heroin. Now it's fentanyl. And, um, and fentanyl, just like even like a few grains is enough to kill someone. And someone that um, even doesn't consider themselves a drug addict, they can buy it like a Percocet on the street and if just to like fix their pain in their back or whatever. And if it's got fentanyl in it, which most of the drugs now do, it's going to kill them. So it's like playing Russian roulette and it's really sad what's happening. So I asked Jackie how, you know, losing an 18 year old beautiful daughter had changed their life. Losing our daughter from the drug overdose changed our lives incredibly like it actually um it was just so sad there was so much pain that we want to spend the rest of our lives to save other children's lives so that the uh, as many parents around the world don't go through and experience this unnecessary pain that is totally preventable drug prevention and education through speaking our voice, um, we can save these kids' lives. So I asked her, you know, what's, what, are, what are the advices she would like to give to the parents out there? Well, I think it's very important um, to have tough love with your kids. It's very important to um, educate them and let them know how the dangers of the drugs on the streets. The drug dealers are not your friends. Drug dealers can look like the kids sitting next to you in your classroom. And it's just, it's that scary. Um, um, and it's really being a, a parent, being a best friend and, and talking to your kids. And it's all about prevention right now. So I also uh, had a talk with uh, Sheriff Daniel Lemma. He's the sheriff for the county called uh, Seminole County in Florida. He's also the president of a major county sheriffs of America. So first of all, I asked the sheriff um, about the law enforcement from the law enforcement aspect, you know, in regards to this uh, deadly issue and uh, the sheriff told me that actually from the law enforcement perspective, they changed the traditional way of uh, dealing with uh, the, this kind of a drug in law enforcement. And I've been in law enforcement for 30 years. It's always apprehend the offender. And I think that we have all found that we can't arrest our way 
out of this problem. We know that Big Pharma has introduced an unprecedented amount of people to opioid addiction, largely through overprescribing. And if you look at the Sackler family, and particularly uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical, a lot of people that were just following the doctor's orders were then dependent on this drug. And then when we closed the rogue doctors and the pill mills across the country, people turned to street-level heroin, and now the more powerful and easier to manufacture synthetic opioid that we first saw coming and being manufactured by rogue chemists in China, and now we see it from the cartel coming across the southern border. And I remind people that that fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine, 50 times more potent than heroin, and, and we're seeing people die at record numbers. So we have to arrest the drug dealers, uh, charge the drug dealers with murder whenever we can. Two, we have to treat overdoses as not accidental overdoses. We have to do nothing more than forensically examine the phone of the decedent victim. And one of the top five most frequently called phone numbers is typically the drug dealer. Go follow up. We have to change the face of addiction and dependency. We know that uh, U.S. veterans were overprescribed as a population group greater than any other number. And then we have to give people what's called the gold standard of treatment, and that's medical-assisted treatment combined with cognitive behavioral therapy. So as the sheriff mentioned, uh, how the big pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, the fentanyl issue relates to the big pharmaceutical companies uh, over prescription. So I asked him to elaborate that. Well, I think what happened at one time, the pharmaceutical companies through their partnership with the FDA, and if you look at like Purdue as an example, uh, they convinced the FDA to make an unprecedented statement. They said, when properly prescribed, Oxycontin was less than one half or one percent or one percent likely to become addictive. And then good, legitimate doctors across the country started to overprescribe Oxycontin, Oxy, Oxy pills. As they became more aware of the harms and hazards of overprescribing and the fact that, that the Purdue marketing strategy was misleading, doctors started to gradually weed their patients off this drug. But at the time, we became a pain-centric society, and there was pill mills across the country. People would just walk down, doctor shop, and get, get the scripts. Now, we've, we've completely eliminated that. Doctors know the hazards of overprescribing. Over uh, the state and country, or the, around the country, states across the, the country have put together what's called prescription pill monitoring systems, which monitor how many pills a doctor is prescribing, how many pills a pharmacy is, is handing out, and then how many pills a patient is getting. The problem now is, is they've gone to the black market. You know, again, either, either mailing in drugs through the internet or being carried across the border. So then I asked uh, the sheriff to explain what they know about, you know, being the for the fentanyls and the most, uh, in, you know, essential ingredients of fentanyl coming from China. What does he know about that? Yeah, so it, it, it's a big problem. Actually, San Francisco is one of the, the U.S. postal hubs where people will, will send it in. It'll arrive at these, these large facilities and these packages are coming in. And we're doing all that we can with our federal, local, and state partners to interdict as many of these things as we can. But we know the DEA can track back synthetic opioids that are, that are pressed with pill presses. 
back to the labs that they actually manufacture that. And I think that that's why it's incredibly important to hold the cartel, the drug dealers, and the people who are, who are manufacturing the synthetic opioids accountable to the fullest extent of the law. Hold the bad guys responsible, intercept that process, make sure that we never do away with minimum mandatories, permanently scheduling of fentanyl, at the same time getting people the help that they need as part of their recovery, getting them clean, and, and then combining that with cognitive behavioral therapy and doing it all while we're not relying solely on the government's dime to do it. Bring in the public sector, the private sector, and the faith community to all come together and combat this once and for all. And then lastly, continuing to send the message out that the most significant thing that we can do about drug use or overuse is to prevent it from occurring in the first place. You have to say no, and, and saying no is, is much, much easier if you've never started in the first place. And uh, talking about San Francisco, um, I asked the sheriff his opinion on how the San Francisco government, you know, is setting up those um, so-called the safe injection center for the government actually to spend money to uh, have a place, a center to inject, to provide needles and the drugs to, you know, basically the drug addicts. And uh, because they think this way will prevent overdose. So I ask the sheriff what his opinion is. We see various diversion programs or mitigation strategies. Um, you know, I'm personally not a fan of, of giving out needle or needle exchange unless it has some ties that can directly go towards prevention and interception of that. I mean, we know that drug use has a direct correlation to other types of criminal activity as well. And if you think about it, if we don't fix this, we end up raising generations of families on our tax dollars because if you're the son or daughter of somebody who's incarcerated or addicted to drugs, you are eight times more likely to engage in maladaptive behavior yourself. So it's a big, big, uh, big challenge that we're facing now. And, you know, going back to the issue that uh, the fentanyl essential um, you know, ingredients, you know, originate from China. So I just asked, wanted to, I asked the sheriff what his thoughts on how the United States should deal with that. Yeah, I think that we need to, to tighten up as much as we can. You know, we knew that rogue chemists in China were, were manufacturing uh, these drugs, making profit. At the same time, they were, their day job was to make legitimate drugs. So what they were doing is saying, you know what, we can make this, we can mix it with fentanyl, we are, we are incredibly bright, we're smart, and then we can send it over to, to the United States, typically through a third country, you know, because we became aware and very suspicious of, of uh, packages coming over from China, particularly when it came to the fentanyl and the drug trade. But, uh, but uh, as, as many restrictions as we can place on countries that are dealing with this, it's important. The scary part is, is the, the Mexican drug cartel has now figured out the Chinese manufacturing process and they're doing it just across the border themselves as well. Yeah, so we continue the conversation about, uh, you know, how the uh, U.S. government is uh, negotiating with, uh, especially the previous uh, administration, negotiating with the Chinese Communist government uh, to, you know, in regards to this problem. Yeah. Okay, let me add, add a bit of... Uh, <clears throat> well, I think that there was uh, uh, some su successful 
negotiations and talks about doing that during the last administration. Now, I'm not sure where that is at now or where, where it has been picked up, but I know that President Trump was having conversations uh, with authorities in China to make sure that the drug manufacturers and drug dealers either uh, adhere to the highest standards of ethical practices or the ones that are doing rogue activity are held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. And for a while, it wasn't illegal over there. Right. So actually, from what we know about the Chinese Communist Party, um, the leader, they did negotiate with President Trump. You know, they did something, but actually um, they could do more, right? It actually was curbed a little bit during the trade war talk. And then afterwards, um, the, after the pandemic, it just rebounds again. So I just want to insert a little background here. So, so, so remember the biggest difference between fentanyl and the cocaine and the heroin is uh, the latter. They are they come from the natural plants, so you cannot speed it up. You cannot uh, how to say mass production. Fentanyl is a synthetic chemicals. Okay, so pretty much you just manufacture that, and then the it costs only five thousand dollars to produce. The manufacturer, the fentanyl that can be sold for $10 million. You're talking about 2,000 times of the profit. Okay. And this is, this is how bad it is. And then, so when U.S. government is talking to the law enforcement in China, on, on the China, China side, they, they, they have answers like this. The first one is that it's, it's too hard to regulate them. Okay, we cannot catch them. The second, they just change. Okay, they, they change from this way to the other way. And because of the pressure from the US, actually China has reduced its uh, fentanyl production. However, they have the ingredients, the raw material, or we call it precursor, shipped out of China and uh, into the Mexico. And the Mex Mexico drug lord just take over uh, there and they will finish the product. And then- And now as uh, the sheriff disclosed that, uh, that now that, um, the Mexican drug dealers, they figured out how yeah. to process, yeah, you know, manufacture yeah. these ingredients. It's probably not, not figure out, rather it's like a, we're taught to do this. So actually, as, as, a, as a journalist who worked on, you know, China for 20 years, and as a journalist who live in China for more than 20 years, not a journalist, as a Chinese national living there, I just want to share it with you. When Chinese government, CCP, tell President Trump, saying that it's too hard to regulate this. That's completely BS. That, that's lie. <laughs> Allow me to that's say that. A, yeah. That's a lie because yeah. it's a, such a, you know, it's the whole China is under its control, under CCP control. They, if they say they outlaw the fentanyl Three or days. the ingredients, everything. Three days will really take, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, China's, the, the communist law and uh, their suppression, okay, but they, they could suppress this. It's very efficient and very effective. In three days, they can wipe it out. And actually, during the trade uh, trade uh, pact negotiation, and the fentanyl production dropped. The reason is, well, Trump was in a very strong position, and they really have to heed his um, demand. But after that, after the pandemic came along, and then Trump have to focus on that, and then it, it just rebounds. And at this time, the, the production and the importing of the fentanyl has been going up ever, ever stronger than before. Yeah, and people knows about how the Chinese Communist government works. They are actually, this is a way for them to, you know, leverage 
right? Leverage use it, use it as a leverage in negotiating with the United States. Yeah. So think about that. China also kind of touted the U.S. saying that we don't have a fentanyl problem here. Our kids that doesn't do this, and this is your your kids' problem. And easily said by that. But what the truth of the matter is, okay, in China they can just through harsh measure they can wipe out any phenomenon of kids taking fentanyl. They just nobody dare to do it because the, the the regime, the CCP, will just put them in jail or even just execute them. However, such a large scale for production that uh, finally got produced in synthesized in the Mexico and in Mexico and importing into the south border, and then Chinese government played big role there, a big role there, including the funding. That support this industry, this illicit, illegal industry, and uh, we don't have time to go go through that. I did, I you know, I did four episode. Another Sound of Hope uh, host did a two episode, so we have to check it out. Just in, you know, just figure it inside and out. Okay. Yeah, and and uh, I just wanted to add, uh, you know, when when they happened during the press conference, when the you know they open for the media to ask questions, I actually raised a question about uh, about uh, you know China because I wanted to see how people's uh, how much uh, people's understanding of the real the root problem really is from China. So I actually uh, told them about the uh, just last week. We did a show about how the um, uh, COVID home testing kit that's um, actually from China, but uh, the company was listed on the uh, press release of Department of Defense as a California company. And uh, so actually this question, um, most of people, I think probably everybody, except for one or two, uh, one panelist, he was keeping nodding while I was you know, asking this question. Everybody is just so shocked. And they said, they told me they are not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and then we, you know, it, it's a really kind of a nice surprise that to see uh, the famous singer and the songwriter Lee Greenwood was there. Um, so everybody knows, you know, he made this. He uh, wrote the song and the sing the song. Uh, God bless the USA. So I asked Lee Greenwood why he attended this uh, round table. I'm glad to be here at this with Victoria's voice. David and Jackie Siegel, of course, lost their daughter to opioids. This is about why it has taken so many lives. And here in the United States, we, uh, the, uh, the death threat is going up all the time. It was worse during COVID because I think people got more depressed. Mental health, health became an issue as well. And uh, we have a personal experience with the fact that one of our sons who's in college, his roommate also took his own life with opioids. And so it's a very personal thing now. We are involved because we want to make sure we understand exactly how to curb the problem. You could cut the head off the snake, and that's fixing our immigration. That would mean closing the borders. That has become a political issue because they think immigration is the only problem. But that's how people have smuggled drugs across our border. That's, that's been going on for 
decades. And, and if this just means closing our borders so we can get a handle on it, we need to do that. And I think all countries on the planet need to do that to make sure that it's not going out or coming into their country. What I found out today at Victoria's Voice by people who testified and who talked at the round table, first thing that's most important to me is I think people don't realize fentanyl is the killer. And uh, you can get, you can get a, a legal prescription and have it laced with fentanyl and one pill will kill you. Kids don't know that. We didn't even know that. So the more we can get that message out, the better. There's also an advocate of it's cool. It's something I want to try, and I'm curious. It's not like marijuana, where I consider it a gateway drug, and I know it is because it killed one of my own kids. But it's, it's, it's an avenue where people want to try something to get a little cooler or escape from the, from the current crisis in their life. What that takes is family, family and faith. Two things that will make sure and secure your personality. It starts in grammar school. A kid maybe is shunned because some other kid's cooler than they are. It rolls over into middle school. They become depressed. They push away from society and from their friends. And then they resort to something that makes them escape. Enter the drug. Then from middle school to high school, from their cell phone, they can have accessibility and don't realize the potency and one of them die. Once one of them die, then their friends go, oh, gee, it'll kill you. It's too late. It's already killed one of them. We have to stop killing all of them. So exactly, do you think of anything you would uh, help with this cause? Well, our position is basically as a celebrity to echo the message. That's what I'm doing now, making sure people get the message. Yeah, and then I had the opportunity to ask um, Mr. Greenwood about his famous song, God Bless the USA. God Bless the USA is a song that's been heralded by the Country Music Association, but it's become the second national anthem for America. I'm proud of that. I'm originally from California, and I'm a farmer, raised on a sharecropper's farm there, spent 20 years in Nevada, and then moved on to Nashville, Tennessee, where I'm a touring country artist. I've sang for 10 different presidents of the United States, and all who like my song have used it in a positive manner, particularly recently, President Trump who use it for almost every rally that they had. It's a good message, but it also starts with my faith. And I put God first. That's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God bless the USA is the song. The message is basically unity and, and having people come together uh, to save the country, the Americas. All right. So yeah, so how do you think? Um, the interview with uh, Mr. Lee Greenwood, and uh, yeah, that song is my favorite song. So <laughs> yeah, I wish we can play this for you, and uh, but uh, I well, I, play that. no, but everybody can just okay. uh, yeah find it. Okay, and then we are looking at uh, the safe chat. So as as we wrote in the introduction, we cannot have the we cannot do this on YouTube. Due to our being blocked for one week from po from posting, so yeah. Just... If you, in case you didn't know that it is it was because that I covered the People's Convoy, uh, lunch launching event in Southern California last Wednesday. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, it, the video was up. We did uh, two hours of live streaming on YouTube channel and both on the YouTube and the safe chat. Mm -hmm. But now if you go to our YouTube channel, it's gone. Nothing left. Like, not you know, the video from last Wednesday is not there. And uh, they also blocked us for posting or doing any shows for one week. Yeah, and so uh, thank you very much for being here with us on Safe Chat. And uh, we, we don't see any comment. We don't know whether it's technology problem, technical problem. Yeah. Or because of uh, just nobody feel like commenting. And what do you think about this, uh, you know, fentanyl crisis? Does, does it feel real to you? I, I just want to know. So if you are there, if you can, you know, leave some comment, just let us know. And uh, for today, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's good for us to run into yeah, Lee Greenwood and also interview all the guests. And, and you, you heard the sheriff. He's, he's, he's very, uh, seems to be a very capable person, really devote a lot of his time to stop this, uh, this drug overdose problem. Yeah, I think a lot of people really care about this issue. You know, it's just, you know, during the COVID, for example, in San Francisco, you know, we've been focusing so much about the, the death, death from COVID or, you know, it's just uh, all kinds of mandates. But just in San Francisco, the, uh, the death from the fentanyl actually is twice, at least twice as much as uh, the COVID death. COVID. So, you know, but uh, have you, you know, how much do you hear that uh, from the mainstream media or the government or the health agencies? So, yeah, please let us know how you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Alan Pearson, that you, you, you wrote the comment so that we know the common, common Is parts it working. working. <laughs> Good to know that. And uh, yeah, so just a summary today, we have not left Orlando. We just attended four days um, uh, CPAC. And uh, I just want to give you a very quick summary of the biggest difference that we saw this year compared to previous year. Uh, first one, much more, many, many more journalists. That's actually, I, I can right. really, that's like, it's very kind of, uh, for me, it's a very stark difference because I covered the, uh, Uh, the CPAC, at least from 2018, you know, and every year, right? So, but like for some years, you rarely see any like reporters like sitting there. Okay, there are reporters, you know, like from even from CNN or uh, other, you know, those legacy media, but they will be there for maybe an hour, a couple of hours, or, you know, do some interviews. But this time, All the seatings in the media row were taken. Yeah. All taken. Like if you go there a little bit late, you cannot find a seat. So that's a very big difference. Yeah. So I guess that's the that that means the weight of uh, CPAC is increasing. That they, they they just attract those media. And also probably it's because of the midterm year, right? Mm, yeah. Okay. Uh, the second uh, uh, phenomenon, unique phenomenon, I probably shared yet the day before, is because of uh, many Chinese people show up there, and many of them are our viewers. They came here. They came to the CPAC as the sometimes a silver member or gold member. Those are the, you know the, the, how to say um, a premium, premium, um, premium. How to say uh, attendee, uh, uh, attendee that kind of uh, a membership, and then. Yeah, and I I would just want to insert. Actually, they uh, we met uh, 
you know, a group of Chinese Americans. They are all our viewers in the Chinese uh, channels, and they were just so excited, right? And but then initially, I didn't um, realize, you know, they know us. We don't really know them, but they were actually volunteering in CPAC. Yeah. yeah. So that's another phenomenon. The third one is uh, a lot of veterans, of veterans, you know. Our, our servicemen and women just coming out of their retirement or coming out of their comfort life and then they're running for, you know, Office. offices, especially like U.S. representatives. So we can give you two examples, right? One is the Arizona, the, how to say, the lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And uh, and he... His name is Young Mabry and uh, he's uh, service, he served in the Air, U.S. Air Force for 28 years and then returned to Arizona as a farmer. And, but uh, he told me that I interviewed with him and he said, uh, you know, there's one thing like uh, when with this uh, infamous uh, withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan really kind of was the last straw uh, to, you know, get him out standing up and saying, I'm gonna run for office because he said he, during the time 911 attack, he was overseas, but was ready to retire and coming back to the U.S. He said he had at that time, even with the 911 terrorist attack happened, he had never had a thought that the United States is not going to be able to get him out of the country and come make him come back. So he was really, really, you know, yeah, so motivated saying, you know, I have to come out. Uh, to run for office and to save the country. And the other one in a colonel from Florida. Wimbish. Yeah, Colonel Wimbish. He's already 72 years old. He's actually an African-American, very talented. He came out from a very poor family, but uh, he's, you know, really studied hard, got bachelor degree, two master degrees, and uh, actually uh, served as um, high executives in Fortune 100 companies and served in the military army for many 30 some years. And uh, 70, at 72 years old, he said he had to come out. He was compelled to come out to run for Congress same for the same reason, mm -hmm. to save America. Yeah. Okay, that's the veteran. The, the fourth characteristic of this uh, CPAC is the moms. Okay, Mom for America becomes the fast, fastest uh, growing uh, grassroots organization. And then we met and uh, you know, Kathy interviewed their executive director. Uh, the president. Yeah, and you got a mom from Arizona who has been working in the TV industry for like 27 years, dropped the, you know, leave that, left that job, high paying job, and then, you know, become the candidate for the Arizona governor, and her name is Carrie Lake. And then we met a Chinese lady, Lily Williams, who, who you know, married a um, Westerner, I would say, and then she came from like uh, New Hampshire. And then she's running for Cong Cong Congress, uh, congressional position in, for, for that district. So you see that the, the mothers running for Congress 
you know, uh, running for Congress, running for oh, governor. I wanted, yes, so I, mean, I running... wanted to add another one mm -hmm. because um, another, um, he, she's, you know, a mom, probably a grandma, Susie from Georgia, Fulton County. She was a whistleblower uh, during the, after the uh, 2020 election because she witnessed, she's being, she's been in the job of uh, a poll manager for over 20 years. Okay, in Fulton County, and uh, during the 2020 election, she said she just uh, witnessed some very, very, you know, not like a weird situations, you know, with the ballots and things like that. So she actually took the courage and testified, and in the Senate uh, hearing. I think you, if you were watching those hearings, you probably remember her. Then she actually lost his job after she took the witness stand and she decided to come out to run for office. Yeah. 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 One one line that I heard enough during the CPAC is uh, stop taking the sideline, jumping the uh, you know, jumping the game. So that's what what's been happening to the veterans, to the Chinese and to the moms. And the, the fifth one is really the high hope that people is having uh, to, uh, about uh, the midterm election. Uh, because of the situation today, the high fee inflation and the energy price and uh, how to say U Ukraine, well, the border, all the mass and the yeah, southern which, border. And yeah, which, you know, relates to the fentanyl crisis. Right. And because of that, and people are really just uh, conservative people, attendees at the CPAC, they expect that to for the Republican to win back Congress, uh, both houses, okay, Senate and the House, so that it's, it's quite um, high morale and uh, very strong motivation. A lot of people are leaving their comfortable life and uh, start engaging the public, uh, how to say, public life, or the um, yeah, civil duties, things like that. So that that, that has been what has been happening. And uh, one thing that I really wanted to share with you, I don't know how how much you know whether you would echo with that is um, um, is saying that American people, American people, this is. Uh, uh, this is a South Dakota governor, okay, and uh, Christy No, and she said American people are with us, but, but, they're afraid. Their voice is very low. Okay, then she went on and said, "We conservative, we're not afraid. Um, we're allowed." And uh, so, so largely, a lot of American people they know what's going on, but they they just they're not used to fighting, and then so facing the pressure, they're they're. Yeah. Yeah, but the veterans, the, the moms, yeah, they are not afraid. Yeah, those are the two leading group, possibly while leading all the other people, and uh, to win back the country. All right, I guess that's all for tonight. Okay. Yeah. And, thank uh, you, Alan um, Pearson, yeah. for comment making. You know, doing the commenting. Thanks for the two news. Yeah. And we thank you for being with yeah, us. It's, yeah, it's actually a difficult time for us. Okay, we came out of here for four days, a lot of cost, and then our YouTube is banned. I mean, for one week, and uh, so we're facing, you know, a much much smaller audience. So that's why we're why we are especially appreciative for being here tonight with us. Yeah, and please we, share our video if you yeah, you know like to support bring us. Bring more viewers. And uh, all right, thank you. Take care. And uh, yeah, well, we'll see you back in San Francisco. Yes. Bye bye. Bye bye.